Hello, everybody. We're glad you're with it as, as we continue on in the study that we're doing through the New Testament, a chapter at a time. We're actually into the book of Luke right now. We're in Luke chapter 20 today is where we're going to pick up the action. And, and just as a refresher all the time, um, Luke was, uh, was written primarily to a Gentile audience, um, in particular to a person named Theophilus. And Theophilus means lover of God. And so uh, it was either written directly to a man named Theophilus, which is what most of biblical scholars believe, or it was written into the context of all lovers of God, and in some way it was, because it was written to all of us as well. Luke talks a lot about getting saved and what that looks like and what's required. And um, he also writes the book of Acts, which is where we're going to go next. Uh, when we finish this one, because we already did Matthew, Mark, and John. We, we did that on purpose so we could get Luke and Acts together, because the story flows very nicely together from the from what Jesus did in Luke to what the Acts of the Apostles were in the book of Acts, and see the early church uh, really begin to take off in that process. And so that's our where we're heading um, in the weeks ahead. And... Um, and of course, you know, the, the, probably one of the best ways to study the New Testament is to Luke into it. Wow. I hit a new low. Wow. Who am I kidding? I look forward to doing that all day. I just couldn't wait. Okay, so we're in Luke chapter 20. If you remember in Luke 19, um, the, the way it, the material is presented, that it's, it's about uh, ultimately looking at the cost of being a disciple. And that there, there's a, a cost to it. But when compared to the reward of being a disciple, the, the really the cost is nothing compared to the gain of being a disciple in Christ. Christ. And that um, that's how the stories sort of all lay in through chapter 19. Well, we come into chapter 20 and the following chapters, and Luke ultimately presents um, costs to two more groups. And, and today we're going to, well, to two more situations. One of uh, the thing that we're going to elect today is the, the cost of choosing not to follow Christ. There's a cost. And then ultimately as we wind down, in the remaining chapters, it's, it's the cost to Jesus for making a way for us to have life. But chapter 20 primarily deals with the cost of rejecting Christ. And remember now, that's been the, the theme, that's what we've been looking at for week after week after week. Jesus has been telling everybody they need to follow him. And he's, he's made it as plain as he possibly could. And that we've seen those that have chosen to follow him, and they've become his disciples, they put their faith in him, and that we've also seen how he's taken a lot of time to begin to disciple them and to teach them. But he's continued to offer uh, this choice to other people, and some were, have been on the fence, and some have outright rejected him altogether. And ultimately, even those on the fence have basically rejected him by choosing not to follow and, and this has been the, the focus all the way along, and it's now culminating as we get towards the end of Luke. I, I, there's only 24 chapters of, of the process that, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a cost of being a disciple, but it's, it's worth the reward. It's really, compared to the reward, it's nothing. Um, 
But there's a definite cost to choosing not to follow Christ, which isn't good. And there's ultimately a cost to Jesus for making the way for us into life. So let's look at Luke chapter 20. There's 47 verses. I will read them to you. Um, you can follow along. They're in your bulletin, or you can open your Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's Bibles on the road. If you'd like to look at one of those, I'm reading out of the NIV. So if you're in a different translation, it will look a little different, obviously, but it will get you the message. So, Luke chapter 20, verse 1 and following. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority you're doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? And he replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. And Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies. This is very, very godly behavior, by the way. <laughs> who, who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what, they, what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. That's a rough story. <laughs> Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since there were seven were married to her. And Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age, 
and in the resurrection from the dead will they neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. Notice it doesn't say they become angels. They're like angels, in that that they never die. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. And blessed be the word of the Lord. Okay, so, where do we go with that? In, uh, in Luke 19, as I said, the cost of being a disciple was developed. And the ultimate cost of being a disciple is obedience. We talked about that. That's ultimately the cost of being a disciple. You choose to obey and follow Christ. Um, and, and so that's what it takes. And so, you know, and he encourages us to weigh that out. However, the reward for doing that is so, so great that, that it ultimately, when you look at it, it's not a significant cost, but you have to, you have to break from the ways of this world and the things of this world and, and choose, consciously choose that you're going to follow Christ and do it his way. That's the cost of being a disciple. And so ultimately it's, it's just the gain is so great that the cost is insignificant in comparison. That the reality is the cost is doing and living the way God wants you to live. And that's it. That's what it means to be a disciple, right? You're going to do it his way instead of yours. That's the deal. And his way is way better than our ways. And yet we're very stubborn and uh, you know, we, we have t- it takes us a while to figure it out. And then even when we begin to figure it out, we sort of usually have a mix of our way and his way. And hopefully over time that gets better. And it becomes more his way and less of our way in the midst. All right. So um, as Luke unfolds now and, and what chapter 20 deals with is ultimately the cost of choosing not to follow Jesus or in rejecting Jesus. And, and ultimately, that decision not to follow Jesus is a tragedy. There's, there's no way around it. It's a tragic decision. And when we finish 19, we, we, Jesus was entering Jerusalem, and we see that he weeps over what's going to happen to them because they're, they're rejecting him. Uh, it's not a weakness. It's a sadness because they, they are going to reject the Messiah, the King, that's come to deliver them. And he, he weeps over their decision. And yet at the same time, at the end of chapter 19, see, Jesus cares about people. I mean, to the degree that he gives his life for them, but he also will always do the right thing, what has to be done. And so when he enters into the temple, the first thing that he does is clean it out. And he chases out all those people who are doing things that they shouldn't in the temple of the living God. He, he cleanses it. He, out they go. That all happened at the end of chapter 19. And then when, when we pop into chapter 20, 
Jesus is there. He's cleansed the temple, and now he's teaching, and he's in there every day. He's in the temple courts. He's there every day teaching. And the Pharisees and the chief priests and the, the rulers and the elders and the Sadducees, they hate it. They've, they've already been trying to kill Jesus for a long time, and they, they just can't get it taken care of. And they're trying to trap him. They're trying to do all these things. And now he's come in and really messed with their pocketbooks because he kicked out all of the, everybody that was in the temple making money. And, and the reason they were in there making money is because they were kicking back to the chief priests and everybody else. It, it had been a, that sort of system. And so they're not pleased. And so they, they get rather adamant and understand these are to, these, these rulers, these people are, are um, seen as those who've been appointed by God as divine rulers over this people. And so they should be the ones walking in divine authority, and they're not. They're absolutely not. They've traded it away for comfort, for position, for prestige, for money, whatever it might be. They've traded it away. And here comes the one operating in divine authority, Jesus, and they, they decide they're going to challenge him. And so they, they uh, uh, and different groups come to challenge him. And, and it starts with this, uh, this, this first little test. And um, they, they come to him and they say, by whose authority are you doing these things? And these are, now, the, the people that are asking him are the ones who are supposed to be the representatives of the divine authority, all right? The rulers and the chief priests. They're the the ones supposed to be doing it. So they come to Jesus, who's cleansed the temple, who's in there teaching, by whose authority are you doing these things? Because, hey, you're costing us some money here. We're not happy. And Jesus says, I'll tell you, but first I I want you to answer a question. And then you answer me the question. and, and, uh, And he's ultimately answering the question with this question. But he asks him the question about John the Baptist. And the question is, you know, how, wh- who was John the Baptist? What was he doing? And, and you tell me about what his ministry is all about. And they, so the divine, the divinely appointed ones get together and they have a little session about answering this simple question about John the Baptist. And they go, well, if you say he's a prophet, then, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you listen to him? If we say he's not a prophet, he was very popular with the people, they're going to they're stone us. And so, guess what the people who are supposed to be representing divine authority can't do? Answer a question. They can't do it. Because they're afraid. Who are they afraid of? The people. And of losing their spot and their place. It's not about God. So they say, well, we can't answer that question. Because they, they couldn't see a good answer. And Jesus says, well then, I won't tell you by what authority either. And, and, and see, understand, you get the dynamic Jesus has clearly proven by what authority he's doing things. Because he spent the previous three years healing people, preaching the gospel, demonstrating the miraculous, talking about the kingdom of God. He's more than proven by what authority he's doing these things. He's claimed. He's made his claims of being God's son, being in effect God in the process. He's clearly stated it. And so their, their challenge is, is kind of funny. You need to see how Luke presents it. Because the ones who are supposed to be the divine authority challenge the divine authority. And when asked a simple question, they can't answer it. And so uh, that's what happens in those, those first eight verses. Simple question. How about John the Baptist? Was he of God or wasn't he? They couldn't answer it. And so th- those who claim to have divine authority couldn't answer the question. Which reminds me of this email I got this week. Um, this is a pretty interesting email. I don't believe it's a true story. I looked it up to try to find it, but it's certainly 
very good. Listen to this. It's about a Texas beer joint that sues a church. I know, I'm building the anticipation. Okay, here goes. In Mount Vernon, Texas, Drummond's Bar began construction on expansion of their building to increase their business. In response, the local Baptist church started a campaign to block the bar from expanding with petitions and prayers. Work progressed right up until the week before the grand reopening when lightning struck the bar and it burned to the ground. After the bar burning to the ground by a lightning strike, strike, the church folks were rather smug in their outlook, bragging about the power of prayer, until the bar owner sued the church on the grounds that the church was ultimately responsible for the demise of his building, either through direct or indirect actions or means. In its reply to the court, the church vehemently denied all responsibility or any connection to the building's demise. The judge read through the plaintiff's complaint and the defendant's reply, and at the opening hearing he commented, I don't know how I'm going to decide this, but it appears from the paperwork that we have a bar owner who believes in the power of prayer and an entire church congregation that now does not. <laughs> That's good stuff. I searched today to see if it was true. I couldn't find out if it was true or not. So I, I just think it's somebody really thought it out. That's a great, that's a great story. Okay. All right, back on track. The, the authority of Jesus has, has clearly been demonstrated by his power through miracles and openly claiming to be the Son of God. And, and it was being challenged by these other folks. And see, here's the deal that ultimately it's this challenging of God's authority that, that gets us all in trouble. And that's what this chapter is about. Um, because there's an attempt in our own lives because of our sin nature that we always want to set up our own authority rather than submit to the authority of God. And that's at the root of the problem. That's where sin lies. That's the deal. That's the main deal that we have to deal with. And that's the story is being presented in this chapter. So in Luke 29 through 18, um, it's the parable of the tenant farmers. And it's a picture of people trying to set up their own authority rather than submit to God. And so they, they kill the heir to the vineyard, thinking it would then become theirs. And, and so what happens is people want... To be in control, and in effect, and we talk about this all the time, they, they want to be their own God. And whenever we do that, we're rejecting God. We reject Christ in the process. Um, and this is the same thing that the evil one did. People ask about all the time about um, the, the process. Uh, the evil one ultimately decided that he wanted to be God. And, and he rejected the authority of the true God and tried to substitute his own. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. I didn't put it in your notes, but you can go and read it later. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths 
of the pit. And so there's this struggle um, that that all of us have to deal with. And, and ultimately, it's who's going to be in control of our lives, us or God. If it's going to, hopefully you choose him, because that's where life is. That's what it means to be a disciple. But not choosing him is not a good path, and it leads to destruction, because ultimately... Jesus cares with, about people to, uh, more than we can comprehend because of the cross. And yet, he's ultimately the righteous judge. And, and that's what people face when they choose not to follow him. And so, these groups then that have chosen not to follow Jesus, they're busy trying to trap him and to continue this process in Luke. And, and the next group is uh, the, the chief priests, which is a fun little group. And... and um, they, they, they figure they'll send some spies over there who look good. They pick the right people. And who are going to sort of try and smooth Jesus over and trap him so that they can get to him. Now, the, the, the problem is that this group has managed to maintain their position in the midst of changing circumstances. And they, they, so they're very, very flexible in this process. And, and I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just telling you what's happened. These are to be the representatives of God. But they've managed to smooth themselves in with the Roman government to maintain their deal. And they've sold out what they were supposed to do in obedience to God in order to sort of maintain position and power and wealth and all those other things. And so they, they come up with this plan for their spies, which is to ask Jesus this question that they're sure is going to get him. Because the question is about taxes. Now, remember, we've talked about over and over again tax collectors here and how they have their own little subgroup under sinners, sinners and tax collectors, because they're the lowest of the low. The, the people of Israel hate paying taxes to Rome. They hate it. They're oppressed. They were once a proud nation over all of that area, They're, they want to be restored to the Davidic time, the Davidic kingdom, when they were the, the, the nation that ruled over all the others. And here they are, they're oppressed by the Romans, and they're forced to pay taxes. And they hate the process. They hate it. And, and so, the chief priests, who in effect have smoothed their way into working with Rome, more than representing God, um, know all this, and they, they come up with what they think is the masterful question. They're going to ask him what he thinks about paying taxes. And they, they, they're convinced that they got him because in their mind there's only two answers. You pay him or you don't. That's it. Well, if he says pay him, the people are going to turn on him because they don't want to. They hate paying taxes. They want to hear that they're not supposed to do that. And, and if he says don't, guess who's going to get him? The chief priests are going to turn him over to the Roman authorities for stirring up the crowds not to pay taxes, which the Romans are very fond of. They got big legions of armies they got to feed and stuff, and it's going to come from the taxes they impose on the people. And so they they present this question to him. So is what do you say? Are we supposed to pay taxes or not? And his answer, you know, Jesus is so profound with his answers, um, and I love this answer. First off, I love that that he says, "Give me a coin," <laughs> because he don't even he's he's so not worried about earthly things. He's not even carrying a coin in his pocket. Do you get it? As opposed to the chief priest that probably had whole lots of coins. But let me see a coin. Whose picture's on it? Caesar's. Okay. 
Well, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God. It's, it's exactly what should be happening. And understand it traps the chief priests again because they should have been given to God what is God's and they hadn't. All right? And so now they're stuck with Caesar. And that's, that's the issue. That's the problem. And so they can't trap Jesus in, in, along the way. And his answer just stops them altogether. He stops that group cold. Uh, and, and so that's a, I love that answer. Now, uh, the next group up is, is the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are an interesting group because they, they don't believe in the resurrection. So the Sadducees, who, who know the word of God at some level and yet don't believe it because they don't believe that there's anything past this life. And, and, and that's why they got their name. That's why they're sad, you see. That's so old. And people always giggle when you say it. I don't know why. But that's why they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. Okay. So the Pharisees at least believe in the resurrection. I, you know, anyway, they're just a mess. So, so the Sadducees now are just sort of this, uh, I don't want to label the group. They're, 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 they're often their own thing. And they challenge Jesus on a point about the resurrection while not believing in the resurrection. And, and so they, he, his, you know, they, they, they don't think it's an answerable question. And, you know, I read you the question about, in the law, Moses said, you know, if a man's woman to a, married to a woman and he dies before they have children, the brother, the next in line, needs to come in and, and keep the family line going. And so they come up with this ridiculous hypothetical question about seven brothers and everybody ultimately dying, no kids, and who's married to who in the resurrection? And he said, so, well, it's not like that. In the age to come, that's not that imp- it's not important. And it's it's it's. If, and he said, you know, there's, in this age, it's, it's, we have this way of doing things. But in the age to come, things are different, and and the whole process looks completely different. And so so the answer uh, doesn't even matter. But here's what he says. He he uses a tense, um, a verb tense to answer the question. So instead of saying that that God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What he says is that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that to God, these guys are still alive. There is a resurrection, and that's what it's all about. And so he, he stops them cold in their tracks as well. And they, they again, they have no answers. And, and what I love next is, is when the chapter's closing, Jesus begins to ask a question, a very deep theological question about David saying, you know, the, the footstool and the sun, and how can he say that about this? And it's a huge question. Guess what? None, none of them answer. They just all leave. Because in the, in, in the end there, it just says, so Jesus is talking to his disciples. Guess what happened? All those groups hear that question. They got nothing, and they just, they bail. Why? Because... Jesus is divine authority. Jesus is the true authority. Jesus came in truth. Jesus presented himself as who he, who he was, the Messiah, the one who would come for them. On the way into Jerusalem, he wept because they were going to reject him. They weren't, they weren't going to see. They'd, they'd chosen. They'd made their choice. And he wept because the cost is tragic. And, and so in our own lives, we need to be aware all the time of the cost, the cost of discipleship is nothing really compared to the reward. And the alternative is horrendous, it's tragic. And so we keep our eyes on Jesus and we follow after him. And that's basically what Luke 20 is all about. And we'll finish it up right there. If you're watching by video, thank you for watching. 
And uh, if you're up in Williston, God bless you guys. We'll be seeing you soon. They'll pray for you up there. If you need anything, call us or write us. Let us know. If someone is upstairs to turn off the video, please let me know that you're up there. So if not, I can get someone to turn it off so it doesn't run for hours. And it's not looking good. <laughs> uh, Doug? Doug, go turn that stuff off. Nobody's up there. And it will run forever. And what we're... Oh, you got it. Thank you, Ed. Turn it off. Okay, and for us, pass up your prayer requests and I'll pray for you and then we'll call it.